Colossians chapter 1, and I'll read to you verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I've chosen this because it's obviously relevant to Easter, about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. I've chosen it because it's a verse to get us focused on the Lord Jesus, amazed at him, appreciating what he's done for us, what we have because of what he did. And we need that. We need that because we're in continual danger of drifting from him. I hope you realise we're in continual danger of drifting away from him. Not usually because someone says, read my latest book on why Jesus isn't good or great. Now, sometimes we might fall for that, but not usually. That's too blatant. Usually it's, it's more subtle than that. Usually our danger is just our focus goes. Without, our, without us noticing it, our focus drifts off Jesus onto other things. Someone or something else. There can be religious distractions. It's easy for a church in theory to say trust in the Lord and it's all about him. But in practice, it is this devotional aid will move you onto a higher plane. You must have that religious experience or, well, what you really, what will really grow you is getting to know the, the reformed doctrines of grace. Now, if you know me, you know I'm for all of those. I'm all for devotional aids and religious experience and even reformed doctrines of grace, but they can all be things that take our focus instead of our focus being Jesus. There can be non-religious distractions. In theory, we're living for Jesus. In practice, it's for this new relationship, that new hobby, this new project, business success, career going this way, working towards that next achievement. Now, again, all of those are good things. But all of them can be distractions from Jesus himself being our focus. And this was the problem with the Colossians. The Colossians, all of these letters have a context, and the context for this letter is, well, it was more of an implicit mood than an explicit teaching, as far as we can make out, that there was a greater fullness that some people had got. They'd moved beyond the simple ABC of it's all about Jesus onto some higher teaching. They'd become a superior sort of Christian because their focus had become something other than Jesus. They'd discovered something superior to him. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Colossae to, to bring them back, and, and it's now God's word to bring us back, to be satisfied with Christ alone and delighting in Christ alone and seeing in him we've got everything we need. We don't need some superior teaching. And one of the ways Paul did that was by telling them, chapter 1, verse 18, and I'm going to focus on the most Easter-connected part of it, just one phrase this evening. Usually I preach a whole passage. Today it's just one little phrase. See it there in verse 18. He is the firstborn from among the dead. I'm not going to refer to the rest of the chapter, but if sometime you read the rest of the chapter and compare, you will find that what I'm saying does come from the context. Now, simply going to do two things. First of all, what does being firstborn mean? And then secondly, how was Jesus the firstborn? The first part will be quick, but we need to get it established. What does firstborn mean? And then we'll spend nearly all the time on 
Well, how was Jesus the firstborn? So first of all, what does firstborn mean? Two meanings to it. One is it's very similar to the phrase first fruits. It means the same as first fruits. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, and you can turn to it if you want quickly, or you can just listen. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstborn means first fruits. I used to often at Easter time be in Zambia. And one Easter I was in Zambia at a small rural church where everyone was a farmer. Everyone there does farming. And 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 was being preached. And everyone easily understood what it meant that Jesus was first fruits, because before harvest they would reap a small portion of their field where they all grew maize. That's always what they grew, maize. And they'd reap a small portion of their maize crop. And what those first fruits were like showed them what the whole harvest later would be like. They'd calculate what they got from that area of field and then multiply it up to see what's the harvest going to be like this year. The first fruits were something small that showed something bigger to come. Now, Jesus being firstborn partly means he's first fruits. He was the first to rise to new life. He was the first to be victorious over death. And he's the first to never die again. And that shows the big harvest to follow. A great vast number of people who will rise to new life, victorious over death, never to die again. Firstborn means first fruits. But there is a reason why it doesn't say first fruits in Colossians 1, because firstborn means more than first fruits. So it means first fruits plus more. And the plus more is firstborn means supreme, means the top means the highest. Now, in the UK, when the Queen dies, who gets to be monarch? Well, it's her firstborn, isn't it? It's the firstborn becomes the next monarch. In the past, the firstborn would have got the bigger inheritance. Firstborn is a statement of importance. And that's true in the Bible also. Do you know that Jacob was called the firstborn? Now, do you know your Old Testament history? Was Jacob literally the firstborn? No, he wasn't. Esau got out first, just about. But Jacob's called the firstborn because he was more important than Esau. David was called the firstborn. Was he the firstborn? Well, if I remember rightly, he was the lastborn, I think. I'm pretty confident he was the lastborn, the youngest of a whole load of sons. But he was supreme over all of his brothers. And so in chapter 1, verse 15, where it says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, it's actually literally the firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses love that verse. They say, look, he's the first thing created, the first created being. No, no, no. Because the next verse tells us he's the creator. And John chapter 1 tells us he's the creator. Firstborn isn't the first to be created. No, it's the supreme overall creation. A top overall creation. 
So, back to our verse, chapter 1, verse 18. He is the firstborn, it tells us, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Him rising from the dead makes him the leader, the head, the supreme one over the church and over all creation. Right, that was the first part. Very brief, but we needed to get it in place, what firstborn means. I hope you've got that. First fruits and supreme. Now we need to spend the rest of the time on this. In what ways is he firstborn from the dead? And I want to tell you three ways. Three ways his resurrection makes him supreme. And for each of them, I hope you'll see he's the first fruits of many more to come. So, in what ways is he the firstborn from the dead? Firstly, he is the supremely justified one. A supremely justified one. Have you ever thought of this? The resurrection justified Jesus. Now that might seem a little odd to us given how we normally use justified. A sinner is justified. Jesus wasn't a sinner. Have you thought of this? The resurrection justified Jesus. It vindicated him. It declared him to be right. Think of it this way. Jesus, what did he say? He said, I will lay down my life and I will take it again. But as he hung there on the cross, that looked like nonsense. No, Jesus, you haven't laid down your life. People have torn it off you. And there's no chance you're going to take it up again now because, look, you're hanging dead on a cross. Jesus said he would build his church. And as his cold, lifeless body was shut in the tomb, that looked totally hopeless. He's not going to build anything. Jesus had thrown in his face as he was on the cross. Let God rescue him if he wants him. God didn't take him down live from the cross. God hadn't rescued him. Oh, it looks, Jesus, all your claims have fallen to the ground. God doesn't want you. But three days later, he took his life up again. Three days later, he rose from the tomb and he would build his church. Three days later, God showed he did want him and he would rescue him in a way far better than getting him down off the cross. Do you see, the resurrection of Jesus justified him. It declared him right. And in this... He was the first fruits of a great crowd of justified people. I'll read to you from Romans 4, and you can turn to it if you want, or you can just listen. I'm going to refer to quite a lot of other verses this evening. So you choose if you flick quickly or if you just listen. Romans 4, verse 25. Wonderful verse. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. Now, how is his resurrection for our justification? Christians are familiar with his death being for our salvation. How's his resurrection for our justification? Let's think of it this way. Think of a thuggish-looking chap. A thuggish-looking big chap. Let's call him Bill Sykes. Children, you read or, or watched... Oliver Twist, you might know who Bill Sykes was, this thug of a cruel man. Now, this thuggish-looking chap has been convicted of GBH, grievous bodily harm, and he's been sent to prison. 
Now, if five years later you meet him out of prison, what does that mean? You meet him out of prison. No, don't be clever and say he's escaped. No, he's not escaped. No, he's walking free. What does it mean? It means he's completed his sentence. It means he's paid his punishment. It means he can't be reconvicted for that crime. He just can't be. He's done it. Because after three days Jesus was out of the tomb, walking free of death, what does that mean? He's completed his sentence. He's paid his punishment. He cannot be reconvicted. But what did Romans 4, verse 25 say about why he was convicted? He was delivered over to death for our sins. So his resurrection declares our sentence is completed. Our punishment is paid. We can't be reconvicted because he's completed it all and his resurrection declared that. I wonder, do you have worries about guilt? Are there things in your past, you've swept them under the carpet, most of the time you manage to put them out of mind, but sometimes they come back to haunt you and you wonder if they'll come back to cost you something. Things in your past that worry you. Are there feelings of guilt that get to you? The Bible has a very specific and clear answer. And it's this. Trust in the Lord Jesus and then he's taken your guilt. He's paid your punishment. He has completed your sentence. So do you trust him? And if not yet, will you trust him now? He is the supremely justified one, and he's the first of many that he justifies. Here's the next way he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the supreme son of God. He's the supreme son of God. The resurrection showed Jesus to be the son of God. Now, at the cross, people said to him, let God rescue him if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. And it looked like God didn't rescue him, as I've said. And it looked like God didn't want him, therefore he's not the son of God. But, of course, the resurrection was God rescuing him from the grave and showing this was his son. He did want him. This is his son. In fact, Romans 1 verse 4 says, God declared him with power to be the son of God by raising him from the dead. But this is where we need to be switched on and, and think carefully. The resurrection didn't just show that Jesus was son of God. God was also doing something new. He wasn't just showing he was the son of God. Something new was happening. I almost say Jesus was being made something new, but I'm not sure if that language is completely accurate. So I'll be careful there. And instead, I'll try to explain what I mean. Hundreds of years before, Psalm 2 had said this. I'll read to you from Psalm 2. Hundreds of years before, there, David, King David, had said, Psalm 2 verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. 
Here David says, God has made me his son. And to be his son is to be the king appointed by God, the ruler of the nations. Now, of course, David was just a little picture, a little dim shadow picture of the son of God to come, who would be ruler of the nations. I am not, by what I'm about to say, in any way denying that Jesus was the eternal son of God, always proceeding from the Father, always the Son loved by the Father, eternally one with the Father. But the Son of God also meant this, being the king who inherited the nations. And at the resurrection, for the first time, there was a son of David, who was also a son of man, who'd experienced a fallen world, who'd paid for sin, who'd had God's wrath poured out on him, and now was the son of God, the anointed king, who was going to inherit the nations. God wasn't just showing, this is my son. He was making him, in a sense, something new. He'd always been the son of God, but now there was a son of David, a son of man, who ruled and would be on the throne. Jesus' resurrection made him the supreme son of God in that sense. And it also made him the firstborn of a great family of sons of God. Romans 8 verse 29, wonderful verse, it says, Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan was Jesus to be the firstborn of a whole load of sons of God. This is why I asked Neil to read us Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 tells us this was actually God's original plan. God's original plan wasn't Adam and Eve living in a garden, having loads of children and everything hunky-dory, and then, oh, bother, it all went wrong. Right, okay, we better get Jesus along and we better think of a plan B. No, plan A was all along this. Hebrews 2, did you notice it said, man was going to rule over creation. But it said, we don't see that happening yet, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honour. He's bringing, the last verse we read was, he's bringing many sons to glory. Now, approximately 50% of you might be thinking, wait a minute, where does that leave me? All this about sons, yeah? all about man on the throne. Isn't this sexist? Is Christianity only for men? What happens to the women? Oh, no. It's saying all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus, whether male or female, are counted sons. It's not about what your sex is. No, it's saying all are welcomed into God's family to be just like Jesus, just as accepted as him, just as secure as him. And think of this, just as loved as him. And having an inheritance just as much as him. Now, I'm teaching you doctrine this evening. Doctrine, teaching about Christian belief. Is that something just dry and dull and impractical? Does does this mean anything to you? Oh yes, I hope so. I hope so. Let me try to illustrate it this way. When I was a teacher, there was a boy in my class whose mother was a heroin addict. For a while, his grandparents looked after him, but they couldn't cope with him. 
They kept his sister and had to pass him on. And he went to foster carers. And I remember him going with another boy to foster carers, and they couldn't cope with him, and they kept the other boy and passed him on. And he got passed from foster carer to foster carer. And there was so much rage brewing in him because he was so insecure. He was so much looking for acceptance and security, and he didn't have it because he got passed from one to another because people couldn't cope with him. We all long for security and acceptance, and here it is. Because Jesus is the firstborn of a great family of sons of God. And whatever your sin, whatever your past, whatever your failures, whatever other people might think of you, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, you can have this security and acceptance of, I'm a son of God. Not because of anything in me, but because Jesus is secure, I am. Because Jesus is loved, I am. Because the Father is pleased with Jesus, he's pleased with me. He's the firstborn of many sons. Jesus is the supremely justified one. He's the supreme son of God. And then thirdly and lastly, he's the supreme new creation the supreme new creation. Was Jesus human after his resurrection? Oh yes, definitely, of course, he was human. He ate breakfast, as I was saying to the children this morning. And he walked the road to Emmaus. And he said, touch me and see, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood like you find that I have. And yet, don't you find those resurrection appearances very strange? Because we're told he just appeared in a locked room where they were. How does that happen? And he came and went mysteriously. Human and yet he's not like us. What's happening? Human but different. You see, what happened on that first day of the week was a resurrection, not a resuscitation. It wasn't just the dead is back to life. It's the dead was raised to new life. Human, but glorified human. Before his death, he had been subject to the fall. Never sinful, never sinning, but experiencing the weaknesses and the troubles of the fall. Now, free of the weaknesses and troubles of the fall. He's the firstborn of a new creation. The supremely, the supreme new creation. And again in this, he's the first fruits of more to come. Let's have a think how he's the first fruits of more to come. Jesus being made new means our souls, our direction and our desires were made new when we were born again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But Jesus being made new also means one day our bodies are going to be made new. New creations when he returns. Philippians 3, we eagerly await the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, I don't know what you think your body is like, but it says here it's lowly. Okay, and it is, isn't it? Lowly, weak, 
degenerating. Sorry, but it is degenerating. And it's going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. And Jesus being made new will even, will even one day result in the whole natural world being made new. Romans chapter 8 says, creation is now enslaved to decay. That's really obvious, isn't it? All around us, creation is enslaved to decay. I remember back in the late 90s going to the IMAX cinema in London. I don't know if it's still there. Do you know Tom? Tom's nodding. There's still an IMAX cinema. I didn't know if that would be old technology now. It's this massive screen and you'd go in and you got given a pair of, was it green and red glasses, I think? And... I sat there and watched as we were taken through the depths of the ocean on a massive screen, 3D. Wow, it was amazing, seeing all the creatures. And you almost felt like you had to brush out of the way the seaweed that you were going through. Amazing. But I found it strangely depressing. Do you know why? Because you kept on seeing that everything around you, it lived, bred and died. And the next generation, bred, reproduced and died. And the next generation, reproduce and die. And I went out of the cinema amazed but a little bit depressed. Everything just seems to reproduce and die. It's in bondage to, enslaved by decay. But Romans 8 also says it's all going to be liberated. It's all going to be made new. When the sons of God are revealed, that's significant, isn't it? It says when the sons of God are revealed. Well, the supreme son of God has been revealed 2,000 years ago by his resurrection. And the new creation has begun in everyone who's born again. But one day, the sons of God are going to be revealed in full when the supreme son of God returns and his brothers are raised from the dead, made like him. And this world is made new. One day it's going to be completed and Jesus will be the firstborn of many brothers. A new humanity living in his new heavens and earth. Now we all live lives troubled by the difficulties of a fallen world. I wonder in what ways do you feel that? In what ways do you feel? You live a life troubled by it being a fallen world. It can be falling ill. It can be falling out with other people. It can be falling for temptation. I expect you can think of many other fallings for we do. Will we ever be free of it, do you wonder? Oh, it drags on. Yes, we will. We will. There is freedom ahead for those trusting in the Lord Jesus because he is the supreme new creation. Have you caught a little glimpse of the greatness of the Lord Jesus? Have you caught a little glimpse of what he's done for you if you're trusting him? Have you caught a little glimpse of what it means for him to be the firstborn from the dead? I'm sure there's more, but I've given you the ones that fit with the context in Colossians 1. How could we ever drift off after other teachings that are about us doing things Or thinking we'd make our life worthwhile if we had that body or that income or that relationship or that, you say, whatever it is you tend to drift off after. They're all like pennies in the gutter compared with the riches there are in the firstborn from the dead. Let's stick with him.
We're going to sing again. My aim has been to get us taken up with Jesus and focused on him. And so we're going to sing a song that reflects that.